The following message is from Grace on the Ashley Baptist Church, located in Charleston, South Carolina. For more information about Grace on the Ashley, visit graceontheashley.org. To show us what true righteousness looks like. To live a life of utter perfection. To face the wrath and the persecution of the men whom you created. And ultimately to give your own life on a cross. Where your blood was shed on our behalf. We are eternally grateful for you, Lord Jesus, this morning. And the opportunity to, to sing praises to your name brings joy to our hearts. And we're grateful for the opportunity this morning. We're grateful that we have this morning an audience with you. And we've gathered today knowing that what we do is not just some ritual that happens on Sundays, but it's, it's the actual coming before the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, our Creator, our God who's come near to us to save us. And we come with full confidence this morning knowing that you are with us by your Spirit this morning and know that you hear our prayers. We've come in the midst of a busy time of life, Lord. Are there places to go, things to do, events that must take place? And if we're not careful, Lord, these weeks ahead will just fly right by. Help us this morning and every day that stretches before us this month to give thought to you, Lord Jesus, and to celebrate who you are and what you've done for us. I'm grateful for your word, O oh Lord grateful for the opportunity that we have this morning to open it and to study. We're grateful that you have a message for us this morning. And we've come with open hearts. We desire to hear what you have for us. So in these quiet moments, Lord, as we prepare to go to your word, we pray that you would just calm our thoughts and our anxieties, that you would cause to, to drift away from our minds thoughts of anything other than you that you might have our full and complete attention this morning, and that your work might be made perfect and complete in us. Father, this morning we're mindful of Layla Murphy, one of our missionaries who, even this morning, is somewhere in Southeast Asia teaching the gospel to refugees who've been kicked out of their country, who fled in many cases religious persecution and in some cases who fled just to find work to be able to make a few dollars to send back to their families that they might have food to eat we pray for Layla this morning as she carries out her ministry in a hostile part of this planet a place that's not open to the gospel a place where there's real threat hanging over her just for teaching your truth we pray this morning you protect her we pray that you would encourage her and strengthen her in her ministry. We pray that you would cause the words that she says and the, the ministry that she conducts to bear much fruit for your kingdom. We pray that you continue to bring students to her 
that would have an open heart and who would be interested in hearing about the saving gospel. We pray, Lord, for the immigrant factory workers to whom she is ministering, who are just trying to scrape enough money by to, to, to survive and for their families to survive. We pray, Lord, that you would provide not only for their physical needs, but that you would grant them spiritual freedom through your death and resurrection and through the gospel that Layla preaches to them. We pray for them and we pray for the world around us. Lord, it's filled with lost people. And you have eternal life and a gospel that's free and full to all who believe it. Help us, Lord, in our own lives, in our own neighborhoods, in our own families, in our own spheres of influence, to be bearers of your light. That we would not be shy about sharing with those around us what it means to know you and to be known by you. Grant us ears to hear this morning your word. Grant us eyes to see it and make our hearts willing to obey it, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Enough of you. Last week, I um, offered to Judy to pay to have my battery replaced in my watch. That I was able to buy a new watch. and I Never had a Rolex before. It's kind of nice. Eh? <laughs> Appreciate you doing that. Turn your Bibles, please, to First Peter, chapter four. If you weren't here last Sunday, you didn't get that joke. But so, sorry, you didn't get half the message either. My mother watches our sermons, so be careful what you say. Um. <clears throat> She's watching me right now while I talk about her. Um, she watched last Sunday as I preached uh, these first two verses here in chapter 4, talking about arming ourselves with the mind of Christ so that we'd be prepared for the suffering, much of the same suffering that Christ went to. It's inevitably to come our way, and we need to arm our minds for that develop the mind of Christ. It wasn't the most positive, upbeat sermon that you've ever heard that from those two verses last week. And then last Sunday afternoon, I went over to my mother's house, and the first thing she said to me was, next week, I want you to preach on the joy of my salvation. That was a downer. Yes, Mother. I did end the message last week saying that there is hope and that we would talk about that today. I hope God is pleased. <clears throat> I hope Mom is pleased, too. Um, our text is first six verses of chapter 4. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking for whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. So as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that has passed suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. 
but they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. And that's the word of God. So last Sunday we began with uh, verses 1 and 2. It's a good outline that Peter gives us. He gives us 1 and 2 as, as a, sort of an introduction and then expands on that for three points or three verses. And then in verse 6 he, he has this uh, conclusion that's uh, been difficult to understand over the years. <clears throat> Uh, so it's, it's a good outline. If you, you guys ever get invited to preach a sermon, you can do these first six verses would be a, a good way to go. So he says in just a little overview from last week, since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, not just talking about the cross, he's talking about his entire life of Suffering, And he mentioned that from time to time, and everybody observed that as well. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. Put on an armor uh, that, that, that in, in your mind that suffering will come your way the same way that it came to Christ who suffered in the flesh. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. In other words, the one who suffered in the flesh because of their faith in Christ, they are the ones who have died with Christ. We remember we went back to Romans chapter 6 when Paul talks about that. When you died with Christ and your conversion experience, you were forgiven of your sins, you were given the power to overcome sin in your life, sin ceased to have control over you when you died to sin. You aren't sinless. It's not what he means and cease to sin there. You're not sinless, but you have an escape. You've been empowered not to sin. That's what he's talking about. The main point here is that since Christ suffered... Settle in your minds right here and now that you're going to also. Simply because of your identification with Christ. Then he says in verse 2, So as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh. The rest of the time in the flesh. That's, that's from your conversion on. That's the rest of the time. Part B of your life. The second chapter. The rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. So he's saying, choose. In in your mind, make this decision that you choose suffering over silence. You can't be silent. You must testify. You must speak. Choose suffering over silence. And specifically in this passage, choose suffering over sin. Say no to sin. Choose suffering over that. And he expands on that in these next verses. John Piper said, we looked at this quote last week, The enemy's flaming darts and God's great commission make spiritual warfare unavoidable. 
and spiritual pacifism suicidal. And so the outline that Peter gives us is that he, 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 he talks about how, how things used to be, how things were back there in the past, how things are right now because of your faith in Christ and what the future holds. That's the three points. Verse 3. For the time that is past. Okay, we, 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 he mentioned earlier uh, when he said the rest of the time. That was from your conversion on in the last verse. Now, from the time that is past, that's, that's the B.C. part. That's, that's before your conversion. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do. Now, if you look back at verse 2, you see that you no longer live for human passions, but for the will of God. And so you've got the contrast between uh, the Gentiles' will and the will of God. Suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. That's the culture that surrounds us today. It's the culture that surrounded this crowd 2,000 years ago. Though that culture has not changed. And, and, And what's interesting is that the sinful lives of pagans, They've not been any more creative. Their sin is just the same as it was 2,000 years ago. thought about this this week, too. And that is, how does Peter know what's going on in the lives of these people? He's writing to this. Has he, I mean, these, these people in, in um, Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, they're a thousand miles away from Rome. How does he know? Is he just assuming since the, the Roman Empire and he's there, there's persecution in Rome, then there must be persecution in the church uh, throughout the world? Or has, has he been told? Has someone told him or written him a letter? You think about that stuff? Yeah. But we still have that today, that same lifestyle, the pagan world. If you've been in a college dorm or on a high school campus or you have a secular job or you spend any time on the Internet or watch most television, you know that that's the culture that surrounds us. And many of us really only experience the tip of the iceberg. And you don't want to see any more than that. But some of us lived in that culture. Some of us lived among those in that culture for some time before becoming believers. Why shouldn't we conform to that world? It would be so much easier just to go along with the crowd, wouldn't it? It was before I was a Christian. It was just go along with them. Well... Verse 3 gives us the reason why we can't do that in responding to verse 2. The reason for rejecting the counsel of the pagans is because we are following the will of God. You can't follow the, the, the will of paganism 
what they want to do and the will of God at the same time. It's one or the other. The contrast between Christian conduct and the lifestyle of paganism is so very clear. Believers have, for the time that is past, suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do. What does he mean by that? He means you've spent enough time doing that. you spend enough time doing what the pagans want to do. And then he gives us that long list of sinful lifestyle choices. We see that list in other places, Romans 13, 13. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy. Paul also says in Galatians 5, Now the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. The very telling thing for us to consider, because that list can be immensely long. There's a reason why Peter chose just these few. But that list could go on and on and on and on. It's just simply an in-your-face, vivid description of what the lost world wants to participate in and wants you to do with them, to live out their lives in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, idolatry. I think sensuality might have to do with the body. Chapter 2, verse 11 of 1 Peter, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. He says passions, those things that give rise to the desires that we have. Epithemia, we've seen that Greek word before here in First Peter. Uh, that we, see, we saw it in chapter 1, verse 14. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. That's the time past, your former ignorance. The longing, which is contrary to holiness. The longings in your heart that are, that, that are contrary to decency. The longings in your heart that are contrary to the will of God. Even in the previous verse, in verse 2, he, he talks about human passions, drunkenness. That comes from a compound word that means the overflow of wine. We could stretch that to drugs and addiction, those things that are part of the world today. Orgies. Well, orgies might be all those former things that people do together. Sensuality, passions, drunkenness. Literally, Comos, banquets, feasts, parties that are given to sexual immorality and excessive drinking, 
Then he says drinking parties, as if, as if that's something different. In my mind, that's not anything different, but it might be uh, to Peter. But the reason he gives us this list is because these things are all associated with pagan religion. And that's why he ends it with idolatry. Lawless idolatry. All the things that are connected with the pagan religion of that day. This is a description of that. That's why this list and not some other list or a longer list like Paul gave in Galatians. Many of of Peter's readers, particularly the Gentiles, those who are not Jewish, who are now Christians, but the Gentiles who are now Christian, many of the, his readers have been converted from this type of background. And you might, you, you see this list, and you might breathe a, be breathing a sigh of relief now to, that, um, boy, I'm not involved in those sorts of things. Thank God for that. But there are sins a part of your life just as severe just as heinous that you haven't let go of. They're the sins of omission in your life that just aren't that obvious to other people, but that sin of not witnessing or not giving your offering today sacrificially and cheerfully, not feeding the hungry or caring for widows, and on and on and on we could go. Following the will of God in these matters is equally as important as giving up drunkenness and sensuality and evil passions. You see, there's a B.C. and an A.C. in your life as well, not just on the calendar. There's a before Christ and an after Christ. It's clearly, clearly evident in this passage. Gentiles, not Christians, people of the world. I'm in Second Peter. For doing what, gen- what the Gentiles want to do. You don't join them anymore. You used to do those things with them, but you don't join them in that anymore in the Results of that could be deadly. You know, Peter repeats these thoughts over and over throughout Peter. And sometimes we talk about we're preaching. We say, well, we just preached on that same theme. Do we need to do it again? Well, the Holy Spirit led Peter to write about it over and over and over again. So maybe we need to hear it over and over and over again. Chapter 2, verse 15, For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. At least he says the same thing with different words. Chapter 3, verse 16, Having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. Chapter 2, verse 12, Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when you speak... When they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. What we see here is that contrast between the will of the Gentiles, the unbelievers, and the will of God. 
Why should believers live out the rest of their lives for God's will? Well, Peter's saying here, because you've already spent too much time doing that other stuff. The time passed. Too much of it. The time passed suffices for doing all those things. You've done enough. Too much. Spent a considerable amount of their lives doing this. The flood of debauchery, he calls it in the next verse. That's what that flood of debauchery is. Sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, lawless idolatry. God's desire is for man to be entirely different than the unbelieving society. And yet we try to fit in and look so much like that world, don't we? Church even does that. That's past. What about the present? What about the present? Verse 4. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery and they malign you. Well, the past is gone. Now's the present. What about now? Well, they malign you. They don't get it. He says, with respect to this, meaning the list of sins. F.B. Meyer says, it does not matter how your good deeds are received by men. If you are like God, you will find them received with contempt and ingratitude. They're surprised. Did you experience that when you came to Christ? Your former friends were surprised. But we shouldn't be surprised when they are surprised. First uh, Peter 4.12, just a few verses later. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. Wake up. That's why he's saying develop the mind of Christ so you won't be surprised by these things. Let's, let's behave in a way that will be appealing to the world, to at least some, Eventually, but initially there may be attacks. Let's behave in a way that they might even see your behavior and glorify God, he said in another place. James talks about that type of religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this. To visit orphans and widows in in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. That's the goal. Keep ourselves unstained from the world. These people are former Gentiles who are now set free, as he says in chapter 1, verse 8. Though you, did, uh, though you have not seen him, you love him. Verse 8. Verse 18, excuse me knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your father, forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ. That empty way of life. So, before Christ, these people were running headlong toward a destruction, and then Christ saved their lives, 
And the salvation that they experienced was very, very obvious to the people around them. It was a visible salvation. What about you? Do you look the same as you did before you were saved? They no longer wanted to go out and carry out the lusts in their lives. And the only comparison I have, I was a teenager. I was in high school. Only personal illustration I could give about that was that God got a hold of me between my junior and senior year of high school. That summer, God got my attention and, and changed my life dramatically. I was, in my junior year, I was, I, was, I was the hellraiser like any other high schooler who loved sin. And I could do it with the best of them. God opened my eyes to that truth that summer. I came back from my senior year of high school. I didn't experience any persecution. Nobody maligned me to my face as far as I know. But I had no taste for what they were doing anymore. And as a result, lost friends. You see, they don't, they don't care about you. They'll just go on to the next sinner. On the other hand, if you're a public person and that happens... It can be, it can be hard. I remember back in the seventies when Chuck Colson, one of the Watergate figures, got saved. My friend Harry Dent, up in Columbia, was the one who witnessed to him and led him to the Lord. Colson was attacked viciously. I remember President Bush's Christian faith being attacked. I remember Tim Tebow's Christian faith being attacked. Saturday Night Live was particularly malicious in that. I had a conversation with somebody this week about that. that. That's satire in many cases, and everybody is fair game with satire, and I personally like satire. But they only attack Christians. These first century believers would simply with, withdraw from the social recklessness and the the, the sin saturation, the religious aspect of their lives before they were saved. And he says they're surprised. Your friends are surprised about that. Seems strange to the unbelievers, friends, companions, family, genuinely surprised when converts would not join them in the same flood of debauchery. And we're surrounded by that culture today. They're surprised. They don't get it. And some might even get mean about it. Some might be incensed by it. Some might heap abuse on you because of it. Why? Because that sort of faith that turns toward turns away from the things that the world loves and turns toward Christ, at the very least, implicitly condemns them in their sin. The same thing the writer of Hebrews uh, said about Noah in uh, Hebrews 11:7. By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear constructed an ark. He just built a boat... For the saving of his household. 
By this, he condemned the world. By our actions, by our behavior, we at least implicitly condemn the world in their sin. And that's why they malign us. And that pagan surprise will often turn to hatred and evil speaking. Jesus says in John 3, and this is the judgment, the light is coming to the world. People love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light. Does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. That word for debauchery, a flood of debauchery, has been translated licentiousness, lasciviousness, wantonness, I think in the King James. And it characterizes people who have absolutely no moral restraint. especially when it comes to sexual behavior. Uh, William Hendrickson defines debauchery as unbridled lust and lawlessness. Unbridled lust. And it's a flood. He says a flood of debauchery. The, 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 the picture here is men rushing head first into the, a deluge of wild sinfulness. It's like diving in. The sin-filled lives of those in the first century has been dulled by their rough living. So much so that they couldn't understand somebody who would leave that hedonism for the morality of some religious sect they never heard of. What could be gained from that? Further, that They're being surprised by the Christian's strange behavior might bring hostility. The word malign comes from a word that we get our word blaspheme from. So to the outside world, we're just a strange bunch of killjoys, to use an old word. You might hear prude or Victorian or fundamentalists or square or uncool or self-righteous or holier-than-thou or judgmental or other things. should not come as a surprise. We know what Jesus said. Quite possibly the, writer, the readers of Peter's letter weren't aware of these words yet, but Jesus said in Matthew 24, 9, Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death. You'll be hated by all nations for my name's sake. Should not be surprised. We've been warned. Their partners, and they're shocked. Their partners in sin have, have left them. They don't have anybody. To, they, they thought they had a friend that could... That they participate in their reckless behavior. No longer joins them in that pursuit of pleasure. The result may be slander, verbal abuse, among other things. Go back to that John Piper quote I shared earlier where he says the enemy's flaming darts and God's great commission makes spiritual warfare unavoidable. 
That's something we need to remind ourselves too. It's, it, it, it's even though they may malign you and 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 heap insults and attack you because of your strange behavior, because you've left the old way of life. Truth is, you're not fighting against them. It is spiritual warfare. You're you're not fighting against flesh and blood. Keep that in mind. The people aren't the problem. There's a there's a greater battle going in the air. You need to be aware of why the armor of God's so important. Arm yourself, Peter says. And when the pressure gets so bad in some people's lives, some will want to go back to their old sinful ways just to avoid the pain. Friends, it's better to suffer for righteousness' sake than to avoid suffering by sinning. They were tempted to do that. So they slandered the Christians. They mocked their God. They mocked their whole way of life. It's to be expected. There's a battle going on. You can't live for the world. You can't walk in the darkness and walk in the light at the same time. And when you start walking, stop walking in the, in the darkness, the darkness attacks. When you stop walking in the darkness, the, the darkness slanders you. It maligns you. It blasphemes you. Old friends turn away. Warren Wearsby has a great quote about all this. Unsaved people do not understand the radical change that their friends experience when they trust Christ and become children of God. They do not think it strange when people wreck their bodies, destroy their homes, and ruin their lives by running from one sin to another. But let a drunkard become sober or an immoral person pure, and the family thinks he's lost his mind. And you can take comfort in these words. If there's comfort in these words, you can take comfort in these words. John 15:18. If the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. Now, what's going to happen to those who malign you? What's the future hold? Verse 5. They will give an account. They will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead but they will give account Christian is supported in this truth a Christian is comforted that in their stand against ungodliness they can rest assured that there's a coming judgment and in the Old Testament and the New Testament we, 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 we see throughout Scripture that God is the judge, but clearly in the New Testament we see the Father giving judgment into the hands of the Son. John 5:22. For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son. So Jesus is the judge. They will give account to Him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. Not to take Him as your Savior means you take Him as your judge. Just, just two choices on that final day. 
You'll either come before your judge or you'll come before your Savior. There's just two choices. He's the same person, but he'll either be your judge or he'll be your Savior. And for some of you here today, if you were to die this very moment, come face to face with him. Remember, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. You come face to face with him. For some of you here today, he's going to be your judge. You don't want that. You want a Savior. It says ready to judge. One who's ready to judge. That doesn't mean Jesus is eager to judge. It just means that knowing and seeing all things perfectly, he's the only one who's equipped and ready at any time to provide perfect, fair, and impartial judgment to any human life. I believe that judgment is near, and it will be universal. It'll be everybody. What's he say? The living and the dead. Everybody. No one will escape. Not even by their death will they escape judgment. They'll give an account during this life, quite possibly, But they won't escape it when they die. They'll give an account after they die. Accounts are always settled. God's accounts are always settled. Now, should this be encouraging to us? Should this be something we should be happy about? They're going to get it. Those who malign us, those who make fun of us, those who attack, they're going to get it. Should we be at peace? Those who malign us will, will one day get their judgment. Well, Peter addressed that in a way in the last, in chapter 2, verse 22. He committed no sin, talking about Jesus, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. Now, implicit in that is he could have threatened, but he did not threaten. But continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Jesus on the cross, in his own mind, they should not be able to get away with this. But he still hands it over to the Father, entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Paul addresses this in a way, too, in Romans twelve nineteen. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary. Oops. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you'll heap burning coals on his head. Leave it. Hand it over to God. God does that. God judges. What do you do? Feed him. Give him something to drink. 
See, at the end of their lives, they might, the, every creature, unbeliever and believer, stands before their Creator. For the unbeliever, he's not their Redeemer, he's their Judge. Hebrews 10.31 says, It's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. All accounts will be settled, so leave it in the hands of God. I get it. You want revenge on someone who's caused you to suffer? I get it. Some godless person seemed to have all the wealth and all the blessings that this world could afford. And you keep thinking that they're, they're the most evil person in the world, but they've got all the blessings that this world affords. And then all of a sudden they die, and you think, oh, man, they didn't get it. No, they'll get it. Their time is coming. You don't need to show any tinge of disappointment that they died happy, because this judgment is for the living and the dead. The pagan world will not get out of this for free. They face judgment the way, by the way, they spend their lives. They have to give an account. And believers for the moment will face slander. You'll face attacks from a pagan society. Those who pursue a life of reckless sinfulness when on the day of judgment come face to face with a righteous judge. Peter viewed those who slandered Christians for their lifestyle as really slandering God. The one who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light, that's the one they're slandering. Keep that in mind. And then he concludes with this verse, For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead. That though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the Spirit the way God does. For this. Now, the, the big question is, what, is that for this about what he just talked about or what he's going to talk about? That's the big question. For this, this is moving forward, I believe. Not referring to what he said already. It's what he's going to say. But this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the Spirit the way God does. It's a little strange verse, rather obscure verse related to 319. Pastor Greg had a couple of weeks ago that's difficult to... Um, Translate. I'm, I do. I, I do. It's a challenge to interpret too. I do find it funny though that in Second Peter chapter three, Peter says these words, just in the Second Peter, and count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. There are some things in them that are hard to understand. Ha, 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 ha. 
Peter's got some very difficult things to understand. He's just pointing the finger at Paul right now. Which the ignorant and unstable, I guess that's me, twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. That's a funny, Peter. Thank you. This verse has also been used, as that 319 has been used to argue that people have a second chance after death. That's not the correct interpretation. I can go in a long detail about that if you want me to. I'm assuming not. The context of this verse doesn't favor any idea that there's there's a second. It would make the Christian life not worthy of living if you had another chance after you died to come to faith in Christ. Or if somebody could pray you out of some, some middle ground. The context doesn't favor that idea of second chance. And the rest of the Bible kicks that out of the way as well. The writer of Hebrews, Hebrews 9.27, It is appointed for man to die once. And after that comes judgment. There are no second chances. And judgment is incentive to persevere under trials, to endure persecution faithfully to the very end, and to be a witness to that truth because judgment is coming. He also says, which takes away that discussion as well, for this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead. It was preached. Now, the NIV translates this for us without, without us having to try, try to figure it out. The NIV says, was preached even to those of you who are now dead. It adds the word now. For this does not look back, it looks forward. The coming judgment will not only bring sinners into account, but will also reverse the sinner's judgment of the believer. The good news was proclaimed to those Christians who are now dead. They heard the gospel while they were living. They are now dead. Even though pagans might condemn Christians and even put them to death in the flesh, but by God's judgment there will be a reversal of that. Their condemnation of the world will be turned around by the Father and they will live in the Spirit as He does. To God be the glory. Purpose of... This preaching is that although believers share the common sentence of death, they might still live in the Spirit as the Father does. These are Christians who have died. And so the text is, for this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are now dead, that though judged in the flesh by those who maligned them, they might live in the Spirit the way God does, because he's the fair judge. purpose of the gospel, that although we've been marked by death, by responding to the gospel, you may live unto God. That's your security. 
That's what you stand on. That's your hope. So Peter says, arm yourselves. Arm yourselves with the attitude of Christ. Arm yourselves with the mind of Christ. Stuff's coming your way. You're now believers. You're not living in that past sinful lifestyle. You, there's, there's a new life that you're living because he's giving you that life. Arm yourselves with the attitude of Christ that you're going to continue to choose to participate in the sufferings of Christ instead of that pagan lifestyle. Arm yourselves with the mind of Christ. Be prepared for the maligning. Be prepared for the angry abuse from unbelievers because it's coming your way. Thirdly, Arm yourselves with the attitude of Christ. Continue to trust Christ. Who is the judge? He's your Savior, but he's the judge of the lost. And will avenge any abuse that you might receive in this life. Any suffering that might come your way from others who choose a different lifestyle. Maybe even another religion. And he will... Usher you to an eternal life with the Father. Arm yourself with the mind of Christ. That's your best option. Think about that. Let's pray. In a moment, we'll sing a hymn, close out our service. Encourage you during that time, if you want prayer with someone, or you have questions, Pastor Greg and others will be in the back. encourage you to make your way back there while we sing this hymn. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the truth of your word. Thank you for the protection that comes our way when people do choose to attack us because of our faith. Lord, may we take a stand. There may even be times in this season of the year, Father, where we are bolder in our witness than we may be at other times of the year. Some people don't like that. Give us sensitive hearts to the lost around us. Take every opportunity to share the good news of Jesus Christ. Do that in and through our lives, Lord. May grace on the Ashley Church make a difference as we go out into the world tomorrow. For your glory. In the name of Jesus, amen.